no, no. I hope oh, you're ready no. for the college football season. It's my worst time so of the year. So you will get <laughs> distracted, Greg, for the next three months. He will not be paying attention to the podcast because he'll be watching college football <laughs> in the background. I just feel bad for your girlfriend, worst of all. She's I, the one who really has to. I know. Well, you should feel bad for her regardless. But now that she has to put up with me in the fall, it's even worse. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Greg, yeah. Greg, what's the big, what's the hot scoop? What's well, going on in the world of college football? Well, we should say it's been, so far through one week, pretty uncompetitive, unexciting action. I mean, geez. What? It's like, yeah, it's like, college, me. it's like college students weren't ready to play football after an eight-month playoff. We should really expect more of them for not getting paid. Oh. <laughs> well, I mean, it, are the powerhouses still the powerhouses? Are there any underdogs <laughs> who could really take the, the computer-generated finals this year? John, you could ask you could ask that question of all society. <laughs> are the powerhouses still the powerhouses? And what answer do you think you're going to get? Of you're course they get are. A definitive yes. Yeah. Um, the only we the, live in a capitalist society mm-hmm. that keeps the downtrodden down yeah. and the higher-ups high. Exactly. <sighs> that said, that said um, Appalachian State did give... Uh, Penn State quite the fight in week one, oh, okay. um, resulting in a 38-31 victory. Of course, obviously, the higher-ranked team came out on top, as they always do, and should, because <laughs> we live in a meritocracy, obviously. Also, the world demands order, okay? <laughs> exactly. Equilibrium, as it were. If, oh, but some sides are more equal than the others. Yes. Mm-hmm. John, I'm glad you you brought this up because uh, this will tie into my spotlight to give a, to give uh, listeners a little tease. Ooh, a little tease. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> Craig's going to spotlight all of college football. Enjoy college football. Yeah. <laughs> Enjoy no, this multi-billion dollar uh, organization making all their money off unpaid black labor. Yeah. Yay! Mm-hmm. America! Hey, hey, mostly black labor. Okay. <laughs> 90% black labor. Yeah. Don't forget immigrant labor, because half the half the kickers and punters in college football are transfers from Australia. Oh, great. Um, who, want, who want a solid American education. Oh. Mm-hmm. Why, why, why Australia? Why are Australians so good at kicking? Um, because they do a different form of football. This is called Australian rules football um, to oh, our side of the world. Just football okay. to them. Uh, fun fact, they're the only other English-speaking uh, part of the world that acknowledges the correct name of soccer as soccer. <laughs> okay, good to know. <laughs> yeah, and I, knew because... I, loved, I knew I loved those Aussies. Oy. Yeah. <laughs> and that's because they have their own football down there, which we know as Australian rules football. I've only watched one game. Mm-hmm. And as far as I know, without the sound on, it was at a bar. And it just looks like utter nonsense. <laughs> Is Yakety Sax playing? While, it while it might play. as well have been. <laughs> because there aren't stoppages in terms of, like, there are in American football. And they just, like rugby, you can kind of, you kind of underhand backwards to players. This time they just kind of kicked it, they punted it forward and underhanded it forward to players. Okay. I didn't, I didn't even get it, even, a, I, not even one iota of how the game worked. <laughs> But that said, I mean, it's still burly men colliding with each other. And, you know, if that's what you want out of your sports entertainment, you know, more power to you. <laughs> well, again, I have no investment in sports, especially now because uh, I live in San Diego and San Diego has lost oh, all its professional teams. Yeah, like, sadly, I don't even... <laughs> Excuse me, John. Hey, don't don't talk about the Padres that way. All right. <laughs> Just because they're on their uh, 15th straight season, like losing over 90 games doesn't mean you could just ignore them. All right. <laughs> Well, don't forget, Greg, they just started offering the five-win pass. Did you read about this? No. What's this? Uh, it, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at it right now. For $100, you get a five-win pass. If they don't win, your next game is free until they win five games. Yes. <laughs> John, we have to take advantage of this deal. Exactly. I know it'll work out for us because you and I have been to number, a number of Padres games. Mm-hmm. And you it's and I like, every time. Yeah, I know you're not invested in, in sports ball or sports games. <laughs> <laughs> Funny joke. <laughs> but... <laughs> We do like going to Padres games because it is a great in-game experience, even better yeah. than the teams in L.A. I will drive the two hours to go there. Um, but every game we've attended, they've lost, um, which I know fits <laughs> well, with no, the Well, no, you get to see but... a great game of baseball from at least one of the teams. Yeah. So <laughs> already you're 50% of your way there to a good game. Yeah. Absolutely. At least one side wins. We're happy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Anyway, welcome to our podcast about classic movies. <laughs> I think we should turn this into a sports cat. Let's let's just slowly Absolutely, turn it into a sports yeah. cat. We've been workshopping our uh, what, what's it called, Bruno and Fuckface in the morning. <laughs> yeah, Bruno, Bruno and Fuckface in the morning. <laughs> On channel channel five point seven. No, it's of yeah. Southern California. No, it's channel two hundred four on Sirius. <laughs> it gets a little blue. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, it would it would be so much it's so much fun to make fun of Morning Zoo, but it's also a lot of work. We have to find a decent soundboard. We need to like yeah. edit it. It's it's tough. It's tough. Yeah, I know. However, I I am still do want to invest in a soundboard or whatever. <laughs> I I just how many boings I could like, stick in there. Hilarious. <laughs> Always funny. Always yeah. funny. But no, this is a movie podcast where we discuss classic movies that we haven't seen yet, and uh, so we're experiencing them for the first time and kind of adjudicate whether they're uh, worth revisiting for other mm-hmm. folks who aspire to be film snobs. Exactly. And this week, we decided to revisit our first Robert Altman film. Yes, but not one that I think uh, pertains to his style quite, quite fully in the way that people uh, know and appreciate him. No, this week we decided to revisit the 1992 film... The player. Joel Levison's office? No, I'm sorry, he's not in yet. May I take a message? Yes, Mr. Levy, I'll take a call. Never say that. He's either in conference, in a meeting, he's always in. Now, who is that? Oh, Larry Levy? I hope there was nothing in the trains this morning, was there? Well, I don't know. The mail's late. We'll go get him. Now. I want him back here before he arrives. Terrible synth score because it's the early 90s. Oh, I was doing like a little Scott Joplin kind of like a little ragtime joint. Yeah, I was going to say if we weren't going to do shock jock radio, we should do like old time 40s like news on the match. I can do that. The way I edit, I have a little like old timey radio filter I can put over it. Excellent. Hollywood. Excellent. We'll keep that up. We'll keep that up for the player. Because half the movie is references are old film noirs <laughs> from a cracking era post-World War Two. don't you know <laughs> it is weird like this has a kind of strange like the uh, Coen Brothers quality to it where you're not really supposed to know what time and era it takes place in it's very well, modern with all its kind of uh, current Hollywood uh, cameos and such like that but it's also like it feels very like ah oh, the studio system you're still on contract <laughs> young man well I think you're you're conflating it with two films that are also from the early 90s Mm-hmm. Um, one is Barton Fink, which is also its kind of own Hollywood satire, much like this film is, The Player. Yeah. Um, and I think they use the exact same mantra for the studio, like the writer is the star, or that's mm-hmm. that's an element of the studio that would elevate. And that's how you know it's a fantasy. No studio would ever say, <laughs> oh, the, the writer's the star. That's like putting the animals in charge of the zoo. <laughs> well, in, that, in that writers would just lay about and nothing would get done. <laughs> Well, they do kind of make that point. There's, like, one producer at one point in this movie who's, like, trying to encourage everybody, like, look at the headlines. Look at what's happening in the news. That's where the real story is. It's like, oh, okay, so we're getting rid of writers. We're, we're getting writers out of the way for our <laughs> yes, ideas. Good. Which, I like and if you look at the current studio system, that's what they do. <laughs> we're going to develop our ideas in-house. And by that, we're going to look at uh, old movies, old TV shows, and comic books. <laughs> Get me Peter Berg and Mark Wahlberg for the latest yeah. from, from the headline story. <laughs> But you're also maybe conflating it with the other, I, I won't say star-making performance, but other film that uh, starred Tim Robbins, who's the star of the player here. And I'm going to say, I'm gonna say star one more time. <laughs> okay. And that's the other uh, uh, Coen Brothers classic, A Hudsucker Proxy. Okay, I've never so seen maybe, A Hudsucker Proxy. So. Neither have I, but maybe that's where you're getting these Coen Brothers vibes. Mm-hmm. Um, what I was getting was... I was surprised. I didn't think this was this has a classic reputation. I'm sure if you ask anybody on, anybody on the street, like, hey, what movie is The Player? And they won't know. <laughs> yeah. But that said, it turned out to be really a, a film snobs classic. Oh, of course. Cause I it's think a, it's a Hollywood movie about Hollywood. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it makes a lot of references to classic Hollywood. And I made note of earlier, film noir. It feels like a, a bit of a pastiche of classic film noir because mm-hmm. it's about a kind of wronged man. In this case, a studio executive named Griffin Mill. Um, and just fair warning, I'm going to call him Griffin Dunn at least once in this recording. Because <laughs> that's the only other prominent Griffin I know who's in Hollywood. Okay. <laughs> but it's, it centers on a studio executive named Griffin Mill, played by Tim Robbins, who, is, um, who gets embroiled in this kind of uh, life-or-death plot. 
Yeah, so he uh, has started receiving threatening uh, postcards, mostly postcards, from a writer who's clearly he's jilted, uh, someone mm-hmm. he didn't like receive their pitch very well or didn't give him financing or something like that. So this man feels wronged. Mm-hmm. And uh, Tim Robbins eventually confronts him, and uh, they get into a skirmish, and Tim Robbins accidentally kills him. Accidentally, maybe intentionally, you know, yeah. it's a little ambiguous. Maybe in self-defense, yeah. I mean, we yeah. at least do have to feel sympathy for this guy. I mean... I was going to ask you what you thought of Tim Robbins' Tim Robbins's portrayal of this character was because he's got a, he's part of him is also like slick and you know a little bit cocky, a little bit condescending to these writers who come in and pitch their ideas. But mm-hmm. also you have to sympathize with him, and he's and he is somewhat of a wronged man. So I was wondering which side you fell on. Um, I fell on the asshole. <laughs> okay, because he's clearly kind of a dick. I there is that. I think. I think it was perfect casting in Tim Robbins, who's not a, who's not a very performative actor. He's pretty naturalistic, so mm-hmm. it it kind of fell upon whatever whatever the scene needed him to be. <laughs> yeah, well, I think I think it is really good casting on the part of Tim Robbins because I think what Tim Robbins plays very well is aloof and someone who doesn't really he has that kind of Peter Weller quality where it's like you could put him in the craziest scenario ever and he'll still kind of like give you a very naturalistic kind of like eh, whatever kind of performance and it kind of works here he's like again someone who's very aloof you know you have all these desperate people who are bringing yeah. pitches he's dealing with million dollar ventures and stuff like that and he's just kind of oh he's casual he's cool not yeah well, well, well I'll I'll push back on that I won't I won't call it aloof I'll say naturalistic because Again, normal people don't panic in the way that act- actors do. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So yeah. Again, I use the term like naturalist, naturalistic, or normal. You know. Yeah. Like, well, I mean, I, think about his performance in the Shawshank Redemption. Here's a man who's undergoing like the most traumatic experience imaginable, and mm-hmm. he still kind of like keeps it very internal. He yeah. doesn't really, you know, let it get to him. And I think that's kind of a similar thing that's happening here. He keeps getting these threatening letters, but he even after he kills the guy, he still mm-hmm. keeps receiving these threatening postcards. And he still kind of, he casually just slides them under his desk or he just kind of like puts them away. And, you know, he internalizes all of this kind of like strife and stress. Yeah. And maybe what this movie needed was its own red um, <laughs> who can kind of characterize it. it like he, the reason that works, it his naturalistic performance works so well in the Shawshank Redemption is because red can comment like, you know, he seemed to have the stroll about him you know didn't have a care in the world yeah <laughs> and like red and uh andy you can't just make a person up you know but in this movie he doesn't really have that hmm. um so again it felt like he he plays off whatever the movie needs him to be and i think that's where i i do think this is a well-made movie but there, there seems to be such a disconnect here between what the movie wants to do and say um i think it wants to comment on the difference between art and commerce in hollywood mm-hmm um, it wants to be a, an indictment, maybe not a scathing indictment, but a satire of the Hollywood system. And it also wants to be, a, as I said earlier, like a pastiche of old film noir and kind of a white, old white man caught up in, <laughs> caught up in, a, in a crazy scenario. Um, and while Robert Altman, as a tremendously talented filmmaker as, it is, as he is, um, does try to juggle all those elements, it doesn't quite come together for me, uh, at least in a way that should be you know, um, remembered um, 25, 26 <laughs> years later. Like, oh, how many, how many other early 90s movies have we, have we referenced? You said Peter Weller, so my mind went to, na- like, Naked Lunch. Exactly. And a Hudsucker Proxy and Barton Fink. Like, so I guess if you, if you have an affinity for this era, maybe you can intone to your friends, like, oh, this, this player movie is fantastic. It's great. You should see it. Yeah. But if, if you're like us and we grew up on, <laughs> we weren't watching these kind of movies at that time. <laughs> we were watching children's movies. <laughs> yeah. Uh, maybe there's that disconnect there. Mr. Mill, I understand you were kind of late coming in this morning. You all right? I'm fine. Appreciate your concern. What can I do for you, Walter? Don't tell me you came here to pitch me a story. (laughs) That's exactly what I've come to do. It's a good one, too. It's about a writer, sort of. David Kahane. David Kahane? Who's David Kahane? Oh, you met him. Well, I meet a lot of writers. Uh-huh, but this particular writer that you met was murdered last night in the back of the Rialto Theater in Pasadena. Murdered? Well, come to think of it, Pasadena's as good a place to die as any. So what's the story? 25 words or less. Okay. 
Movie exec calls Ryder. Ryder's girlfriend says he's at the movies. Exec goes to the movies, meets Ryder, drinks with Ryder. Ryder gets conked and dies in four inches of dirty water. Movie exec is in deep shit. I mean, I liked it. You're right. There's a lot of... It's it's a very well-paced movie, I would say. I mean, it takes about 40 minutes to get to the actual killing, which is kind of the inciting incident, which kind of mm-hmm. disappointed me. But there is this kind of, like, nice... Again, this is what Robert Altman does. He does a nice, like, kind of leisurely pace. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, it works for me, because usually I hate those kind of movies. But for this one, it kind of works. Um, and it still kind of maintains the thriller element. It still kind of has a feeling for the stakes. So you're invested in the story, even though it is kind of moving at this more lethargic pace than you're used to for a thriller. Um, no, you're definitely I, right. I will give it credit. It's a good thriller. Yeah. And I didn't know I didn't know quite where the story was going, and there's enough mm-hmm. twists and turns there. Um, and, and it doesn't go like completely off the rails like Barton Fink does. Yeah, I, <laughs> or it gets fantastical, let's say. Yeah, exactly. Again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push you on your terms here. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Fair check, enough. check your pronouns. <laughs> I, think, I think what also is kind of what maybe doesn't help this movie age so much is that we're so saturated nowadays with like meta commentary and this movie is don't get me wrong very Uh, meta but it it it's very subtle enough in the early 90s where they were trying to kind of like push that envelope whereas today it's like everything is like oh look how clever i am look at me point at myself objection your honor (laughs) objection (laughs) because we haven't even gotten to the most famous aspect of this movie and that is the eight minute long take tracking shot yeah, that, the opening. that opens the movie. Yeah, the it literally opens up with a clapper. <laughs> yeah, it's not that clapper doesn't even imply that they're shooting a scene. It might as well. It could possibly be the real clapper, the sound and audio or the uh, audio to the actual scene that they're shooting. <laughs> yes. So the movie starts with a eight minute long take, uh, mm-hmm. wherein the camera kind of circles around this the back lot, the studio back lot, and so we're kind of introduced to our character and kind of the characters and kind of the mise en scène. And I thought that would have been fine, but you said, like, oh, things are too clever by half. What does it say when a character is like, oh, long takes? Like, aren't they great? <laughs> Why don't studios do long takes anymore? Remember Touch of Evil? <laughs> remember wait, Goodfellas? Yeah, I remember all these other references, long takes that people love <laughs> while we're I doing this that was long kind of take. Funny. No, thumbs down. I thought that was I'm kind not of an funny. idiot. <laughs> all right. <laughs> well, hold, hold, okay, wait, there's two, we, we passed two different conversations. One, they're both talking about long takes, but I think the second one is kind of like also making fun of long takes, where he's like, yeah. ugh, so many long takes. Just get to it. Cut, cut, cut. Make it exciting. <laughs> I think it's kind of funny that we get both perspectives as we're going through this whole complicated long take. I thought it was kind of funny. That's true. And uh, yeah, I will compliment the scene because we also get a taste of what Robert Altman's really known for is kind of overlapping dialogue, mm-hmm. um, a little naturalistic sound so we do get some of that and i think what's really important for the story is that everyone's talking very quickly during this eight minute scene mm-hmm. um and what i what i found like re- also what i think is also very important nobody's listening to each other <laughs> i guess that's also true <laughs> so i think that's that also speaks to the selfishness of the studio executives and characters that we'll see later in the story so <laughs> very fair point very fair point mm-hmm. i didn't even think of that yeah but from there, it, it closes, and when it cuts is when our main character, Griffin Mill, does get that first threatening postcard. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're right. It, I, I actually think it's kind of perfectly paced to where it ramps up at a perfect 35-minute act break um, mm-hmm. where he thinks he's found the writer that is that is sending him these threatening postcards. It is a writer that he's turned down or hasn't gotten back to or, you know, quote, jilted. Because um, mm-hmm. writers are white, are generally white males and a privileged, you know, <laughs> annoying bunch. So <laughs> I say that as a writer myself. <laughs> and again, as the other running commentary is uh, happy endings. Hollywood always wants a happy ending. So he confronts this guy as they're wa- as they are watching the bicycle thief. Oh he goes yeah, because again, this is a, this is a movie about movie lovers too. So yeah, of course, who yeah. isn't going to spend their Thursday night watching a sixty-year-old <laughs> Italian movie <laughs> with a sad ending? They yeah. wouldn't do that in Hollywood, you know. Mm. This is true art. Yeah, I will. And one thing I do, I wish they kind of tied to. We'll we'll get to there when once we explain the rest of the plot. But mm-hmm. the scene that they do portray in the Bicycle Thieves, um, or Bicycle Thief, as I say in this movie. <laughs> yeah. you know, I know, mistranslation. But is the climactic moment when the uh, the titular Bicycle Thief, the uh, the man who um, has been wronged and has been chasing all over town for his bike, has to choose between whether he's going to steal a bike himself to maintain his livelihood mm-hmm. um, or make the right moral decision. 
So exactly, I wish I wish it kind of came to that conclusion too with Griffin Mill. It doesn't quite get there, but anyway, mm-hmm. let's continue with the plot. He confronts this writer. <laughs> yep, they get into a scuffle. They mm-hmm. they have a drink. They share a drink first, and you know he airs. They, they get a little tipsy. Yeah, both. Yeah. Of them. Mm-hmm. But then they get into a little scuffle, and uh, he pushes him into like a half a foot of water, and he drowns him in it. I'm like, I, well, yeah. there's no water. There's no standing water anywhere. <laughs> well, to be fair, if I could, if I could play the Alan Dershowitz in this situation, technically <laughs> the writer pushes Griffin Mill into the little drainage oh, okay. thing. So you could say self-defense. <laughs> stand your ground, California. Yeah. Stand your ground, state right. <laughs> sure. So there, there's some ambiguity there, but yeah, I, I mean, if you didn't like Griffin Mill right now, you're, you're not going to like him after this, because no. now it looks like he's almost about to get away with murder. Yeah, because he, I mean, it, obviously after he kills him, what does he do? He tries to frame it as a robbery. He yeah. smashes his window, he takes his wallet, takes all the money out of it, throws it away, you know, and again, he's successful for a while. The cops do come and question him, and they do kind of have him, have the finger on him as the main suspect, but they don't have enough evidence yet to really... Yeah capture him so for the remainder of the movie there is this kind of like again it's not so much of the plot but there is this element of cat and mouse like the detectives are still hovering around him they're still asking him questions they're still kind of bothering him every once in a while but again tim robbins doesn't really let it get to him yeah well i'm glad you mentioned the detectives too because this being a a, a hollywood (laughs) satire (laughs) uh, there are a lot of celebrity cameos Oh yeah. However, the the oddest piece of casting is that one of those detectives that's chasing after Griffin Mill is played by Whoopi Goldberg, which I didn't mind so much. I thought she did a good performance. I no, she's got such a distinctive personality. Like I thought, like wait, is she because she's introduced by saying like um, she's in Griffin Dunn's office and there's an Oscar there. There's an Academy Award, mm-hmm. and she she like the other detectives are all really impressed with it. And she's like, but I'm like, wait, but that's clearly Whoopi Goldberg who has won an Oscar <laughs> at this point. <laughs> so it it's the one like disconnect I couldn't make. I wish they and they speak to this like earlier like uh, casting a no name or something. But yeah. instead, I was so conscious that I was watching Whoopi Goldberg there because her voice is so distinctive, her presence is so distinctive. So. I still thought it was kind of early enough in her career that she could pull off kind of a minor role like this. Obviously, yeah, John, she won an Oscar two years prior. <laughs> ah, whatever. <laughs> I mean, you're right. If if this were cast today, you'd get like Regina King in there or something. You know, someone mm-hmm. with, with a little more of a character actor pedigree. Yeah. Um, who's but again, not, who's like, not as well known and can kind of slip into those performances. Before we start, I just said, Paul wanted to see a movie last night. He came in here raving about Paul. What was the name of that movie that they changed the lady into the chicken at the end? What did you say? Freaks. Freaks. Have you ever seen this? Todd Browning, yes. Oh. One of us. One of us. One of us. One of us. He came in doing that. He was raving about it. She loved it. He loved it. It was thrilling for me. It's also good because it's like, and again, meta-commentary, they, they do comment on the fact that it's like, at one pers- at one point, someone mentions, it's like, I was going to cast a, a part just like you. You know, she was like a tough black woman cop. And it's like, oh, okay, because I'm black, I have to be like this. It's like, no. And I'm not saying because you're a woman, you have to be like this. You know, it's like, okay, yeah. again, that whole argument about, you know, tight casting and things like that. Yeah, I, th- I thought it was funny. I liked it. I okay. liked the role. Yeah. All right. But John, we didn't even get to the twist. <laughs> Griffin Mill is still receiving uh, threatening postcards. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And do we ever really find out who was sending them? <laughs> uh, well, I guess we'll get. I think it comes up at the very end because the other, the B story here, is um, Griffin Mill is threatened by another kind of junior executive at the studio, mm-hmm. whose name is uh, Levy Levi. I think it's Levy. Yeah, you, you know, know Jew play- name. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> well, played by noted uh, character actor and goy, uh, Peter Peter Gallagher. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, the other kind of, I guess we should also mention, uh, Fred Ward is in this movie as like a kind of one of those classic Hollywood fixers. <laughs> he also, he's well, still- John, John, quote, head of security, unquote. Yeah, of course. <laughs> And he's another kind of interesting uh, presence because he knows he's committed the murder and he's trying his best yeah, to keep it on the lamb, which mm-hmm. I also thought was kind of, it's an interesting kind of twist that you don't usually get at these stories. Usually, you know, the main character is the one alone, the one who knows he's done something wrong and he's the only, like, you know, he's sweating bullets. But here it's like, he has a confidant. It's like, all right, here's what you tell the cops. Here's what you tell your lawyer. <laughs> yeah. Or, yeah, well, he starts grilling him in one scene. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because the movie is playing off the savviness of viewers and it is being so self-referential, like... I think they do have to. Then the character you can't have a character like playing dumb. Like, well, what what really happened, Griffin? <laughs> exactly. <yeah. laughs> so I think I think he's kind of with the where they expected the rest of the audience to be. 
but that said, I, I actually, the one scene that really took me out of it was when, um, again, the character played by Fred Ward is on to what has happened with Griffin mm-hmm. and he starts grilling him is like, well, do you, you got to answer, you got to answer the questions the way I'm posing the questions the way the cops will. You got to be, you know, the heart of stone here. Mm-hmm. You have to be firm in your answers. And this scene I didn't like because it, it felt so artificial. <laughs> um, there were scenes where uh, Robert Altman was playing to his trademarks where, you know, it's overlapping dialogue and natural sound. And I was getting a little bit more invested, but here it's like, uh, like low, ang- like low angles, <laughs> like wide lenses, <laughs> the, the synth score or whatever. Yeah. Whatever, whoever did the score, I think Thomas Newman um, is really, you know, kind of blaring in your ear. And I didn't, I didn't quite buy it. It felt a little, it no, was like a little see, bit that's too that... overboard. No, I like that. I like that. Again, I I like to be reminded I'm watching a movie. Like, yes, movie, movie, more movie, please. <laughs> and I mean, I obviously don't have as much experience with Robert Alma as you do, but I do get kind of annoyed with the naturalistic dialogue, the kind of, again, the slow pacing, the methodical pacing he tends to have. So for me, I think this would probably be my favorite Robert Alma movie I've seen. Granted, I've only seen like three, so... <laughs> Like yeah, this and Nash and Prairie Home Companion. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Clearly, uh, have not seen his it. classics. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It depends on kind of what you. I guess in this, well, yeah, maybe he does. Now that I'm re- revising it, like kind of, um, he does kind of balance those naturalistic elements well with the kind of um, self-referential and exaggerated uh, film noir spoof that this movie is. Exactly. So maybe maybe you're right. Maybe I should give it a little more give it a little more credit. Mm-hmm. And so. You're right. So we introduce the uh, executive who's kind of gunning for his job, mm-hmm. um, Levi, and what he, what Tim Robbins, or I keep calling him Tim Robbins, <laughs> um, yeah. Griffin Mill, he concocts his plan with this really heavy downer of a movie. It's basically like Dead Man Walking. That's the plot. Um, so I just love. I was gonna say they're damn lucky to make this movie in the early '90s. Mm-hmm. Because the movie you just said they pitched is a thriller, um, mm-hmm. which were big in the early '90s. <laughs> the movies of Joe Esterhaus, you mentioned Dead Man Walking, like a yeah. Time to Kill. <laughs> uh, I, I forget that movie with uh, where Tommy Lee Jones has to defend a kid <laughs> against. I, I, I think I don't I'll, even I'll, remember I'll, that one. <laughs> yeah, I'll think of the title later. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, you're right. He's he's yeah. He's he's pitching a a real thriller. But the the two writers that are pitching it are like, this is gonna be real. No stars. Um, downer <laughs> ending. <laughs> exactly. And I don't know who's the who's the actor who plays that uh, writer. I've seen it. He's a British actor, and I've seen him in a million things. And he always plays the same kind of character. Someone like wiry, like someone who just did like a huge mound of coke. Just like, <laughs> he's always like really intense and always acting with his hands and smoking on a cigarette. Like that's that's his niche. He really likes to play. Okay. Well, I I I don't know. I mean, I I was probably distracted by the um, celebrity cameos. So while you look him up, okay. I'll vamp by listing all the great celebrity cameos we have. Andy McDowell, Cher, uh, Malcolm McDowell. Um, <laughs> Who has the most robust cameo by telling Griffin Mill off, like, hey, don't badmouth me behind my back, you prick. Oi, prick. <laughs> exactly. Um, Vincent D'Onofrio, who's in this movie? I forgot about him. Uh, well, got... well, that's how he's actually playing a character, John. Never mind. All right, sorry. I wanted <laughs> yeah. to mention uh, John Cusack. John Cusack's in the movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, other, uh, Lily Tomlin, Scott Glenn mm-hmm. are playing, too. And probably the best cameo is uh, Burt Reynolds, um, <laughs> who, like all of his Hollywood productions, just doesn't want to be there. <laughs> nope. <laughs> so he's having dinner, and he just calls our main character an a-hole, astutely. <laughs> but you have a feeling that he would anyway, because <laughs> he's, he's a grumbly old man now who's uh, coming down from his coke high in the mm. 70s and 80s. And so I guess we lost the plot a little bit. So yeah. Griffin, he, he plans on the way, because he's also like close to losing his job as well. Again, try to give him kind of like an underdog tactic or something like that. So mm-hmm. what he what his plan is, he's going to give this downer of a movie that's going to fail spectacularly to this other young guy and kind of mm-hmm. swoop in and save the day. And yeah. or at least make his make his opponent look worse and have him lose his job. Exactly. And mm-hmm. wouldn't you know it, we jump forward a year and his plan totally succeeded. Because <laughs> yeah. we see the end result of the movie. Now it has Susan Sarandon, Julia Roberts, and Bruce Willis in it. <laughs> yeah. You think they're doing the downer ending where Julia Roberts gets sent to the execution chamber. And then yeah. Bruce Willis busts in with a shotgun to save yeah. her. And they walk yeah. off into the sunset. It carries out and have a, they're romantic partners. And they have this like final final cheesy line and then a kiss. And then, you know, <laughs> happy, uh, you know uh, overwhelmingly happy 
happy ending. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and Bruce Willis actually delivered a line. I thought that's the way they skirted by all these cameos is that they just don't give him any lines. But Bruce Willis actually does have a line, so good for him. No, I, yeah. Oh, I think also the reputation of Robert Altman really kind of carried the day. Mm. And Bruce Willis, to be fair to him, has had another... Uh, uh, supporting role in another Hollywood satire called What Happened. Um, oh, that's right, uh, a forgotten yeah. movie, which should be forgotten. Terrible. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it's got Rob, late stage Robert De Niro, the best Robert De Niro. <laughs> <laughs> and Barry Levinson, too. All of his best movies have been in the last 10 years. Oh. I think you'll agree. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I guess that's kind of the twist is that Griffin Mill gets away with murder. Yeah, because they can't they can't pin it down. I mm-hmm. I think we're we're kind of like skirting over. I think it does have a a ramp up with the only kind of absurd note that the movie takes is uh he receives a postcard with a rattlesnake on it. You know those mm-hmm. kind of postcards. <laughs> <laughs> and then when he gets picks up his car from the valet, there is indeed a rattlesnake inside of it, a real live <laughs> rattlesnake that he somehow kills. But exactly, <laughs> I think that's the only kind of like ridiculous touch in the movie. No, yeah. Um, but other than that, uh, through some plot machinations, a, a phony, phony baloney witness, um, <laughs> Griffin Dunn does get off, and the movie itself, much like this meta, meta movie we just saw with Bruce Willis and Julia Roberts, does have the same exact uh, happy ending. Um, and to answer your question earlier, we kind of don't find out um, exactly who this writer is, mm-hmm. um, but he does give a call in his, to Griffin Mill in his new Rolls Royce. <laughs> he's been driving because, a Range Rover for most of the movie, and now he has yeah, a Rolls Royce. And now he's upgraded, yeah, now he's upgraded, because he's been promoted to studio head. <laughs> he he receives a call, and he's like, and somebody on the line who he doesn't know says, like, hey, I'm the writer who's who's pitching a movie. A studio exec gives threatening postcards. <laughs> <laughs> And then, you know, um, Tim Robbins' character astutely points out, like, does this have a happy ending? And he says, like, well, it depends. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, of course, what is the, t- like, what's the title you're thinking of? I'm thinking The Playa. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that's a, that's about as, as biting and acerbic as the movie gets. Yeah. And I do want to pull up this quote from Roger Ebert's review of it. Mm-hmm. Um, in which he says the movie is, uh, quote, uh, presented with a, a cold, sardonic glee. Uh, a movie about today's Hollywood, hilarious and heartless in equal measure, and <laughs> often at the same time. Yeah. And John, I was going to ask you, with 26 years of hind- hindsight, <laughs> do you think this movie is a particularly biting satire? Um, that's that's kind of a hard thing to answer every time we're going to come across one of these satires. Mm-hmm. Um, on the one hand, I do think it works as satire. I don't know how kind of biting it is. I would say that the ending is about as biting as you can possibly get. Again, having a quote-unquote happy ending where, you know, the biggest douche wins and gets away with murder, literally. Like, I do think that is kind of, like, an interesting observation right there. Um, So, yeah, I would agree that it is quite biting, at least towards the end. I think overall the movie isn't very biting, because, you know, again, it's for a thriller, it's got a very leisurely place. Even then, like, the fact that we qualify this as a thriller and it has an ending as happy as it is, like, I do think is also kind of a weird kind of juxtaposition between, you know, the genre it's supposed to be in and, again, the satirical point it's trying to make. So I thought, I mean, I th- the movie worked for me, and I totally agree with Roger Ebert. I mean, I'm not going to disagree with Mr. Ebert. <laughs> yeah, I, oh, few, few people do. I mean, he was a genius. So <laughs> I I think it worked as a thriller. I will say, speaking of the satire element, it's not very funny. Like, I don't think there are laugh-out-loud moments, really. I mean, they, you no. get kind of, like, knowing nods. Mm-hmm. And I do think it was kind of safe in terms of this the Hollywood satire way of like, oh, these people are phonies, but we know we're phonies. Yeah, exactly. Like, I think, again, with 26 years of hindsight, the really biting satire is like, well, who's who's really a perpetrator of the casting couch? You know, who is really, who is really, um, you know, gotten away with murder or, you know, uh, indiscretions like drunk driving or something like that. Like, I, I think this movie's not as dark as it could have been. Um, no. And maybe Robert Altman, who didn't, who had kind of a, um, kind of a career flatline in the 80s um, did kind of take a did do a Hollywood satire but also a, a somewhat safe approach to that. Uh, hello, Popeye okay, his masterpiece <laughs> You're right I, I'm amazed he didn't get more more jobs because of that 
I mean, I think that's probably his experience making Popeye is probably what made him the perfect filmmaker to make this movie. <laughs> I'm sure. Obviously, yeah, you would you would do Scorched Earth um, for if you were forced to do a Popeye movie, a live action Popeye movie. I got a pitch: live action Popeye. We'll put the biggest name in it, Robin Williams. He's perfect. <laughs> perfect. And we'll get the the actress who looks Shelley Duvall, the actress who looks most like olive oil. Exactly. Perfect. I mean, they're both available. I mean, it's fate. <laughs> You. Yeah, that's right. The king of suspense himself. You remember me. I haven't heard from you for a while. Well, I've been busy. I've been writing a script. I got okay, inspired. Okay, okay, tell him. Give him the pitch. You'll love this script. It's great. All right, it's a Hollywood story, Griff. A real thriller. It's about a shitbag producer, studio exec who murders a writer he thinks is harassing him. Problem is, he kills the wrong writer. And now he's got to deal with blackmail as well as the cops. But... Here's the switch. Son of a bitch, he gets away with it. Larry, get off the speaker. I want to talk to him privately. Sure thing. This is a winner, Griffin. It's a winner. Gets away with it? Absolutely. It's a Hollywood ending, Griffin. He marries the dead writer's girl, and they live happily ever after. Can you guarantee that ending? If the price is right, you got it. If you can guarantee me that ending, you got a deal. I guarantee it, Griffin. What do you call this thing, anyway? The player. The player. I like that. What took you so long? Traffic was a bitch. I mean, I I do kind of agree with you, like maybe 26 years later. But I mean, I'm trying to cast my mind back to the early 90s. This movie probably felt a lot fresher. Like Mm. nowadays, you know, Hollywood satires are like a dime a dozen and you can see all the cliches that now like these naval gazy Hollywood on Hollywood movies like are yeah. trying to make so but in my head it still kind of works you're right it's not like gut bustingly funny but it's it's a nice little kind of like exhale chuckle kind of funny like hmm yes yeah. that was I, knowing yeah especially for film snobs when the the camera when a scene ends lingers on Alfred Hitchcock when mm-hmm. this is obviously a Hitchcockian thriller <laughs> exactly when characters talk about um like they use a pseudonym Joe Gillis <laughs> Which obviously you and I, like, you know, <laughs> being cinephiles, like, you and I get that. But, I, yeah, I just don't think it's... I, I'm, I'm a man of the people, John. You know this. And so <laughs> I'm thinking I'm thinking from their perspective, there's not as much they're going to get out of this. And so No, um, and I think that's that's probably has a lot to do with this movie's reputation. is the fact that it's super meta-quality movie made for critics and people mm-hmm. who are in the know, not for the average John Q public. Yeah. It's 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 appeal is a little limited. That said, mm-hmm. again, I I think we both find it's a nice thriller, but yeah, it works. Yeah. But yeah. you know, it's it's I don't I don't know if it's great. Uh, mm. It's very very good though. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll just I'll just say good. Put that on put that on a poster. <laughs> it's good. <laughs> it's dot dot dot. Yeah, which I can I can say about uh, let's say sixty percent of movies. All no, of movies. <laughs> I think I'll give it two stars. Yeah. Out of four million. <laughs> oh, <laughs> no, that's not that's unfair. That's unfair. Well, that was a that was a Chuck Klosterman reference that you totally missed. <laughs> Which one? Uh, he he famously was a, f- a film critic for a local newspaper in North Dakota for so. Oh, famously, for, <laughs> everybody knows that. <laughs> in his early career, yes, in his early career, and uh, for six months, for every single review, he just gave every movie two stars. <laughs> great, yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure he got a great chuckle out of that. In the, you in know the what, poor, Greg? Some poor people... readers of the of the of the um, Sioux Falls Gazette <laughs> were built into. <laughs> Watching, I don't, I don't know, a Hudsucker proxy. Greg, he was just standing true to the true nature of criticism. Okay, it's not about okay. giving it ratings. It's not about being consumer advice. Well, we're about consumer advice, but you know, absolutely for real film critics, that's not. Yeah, but, yeah. but we're Philistines. We're fools. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're no, we're no Tony A.O. A. Scott. So no, we're no Wesley Morris's. Mm-hmm. Yeah, who doesn't even do movie movie reviews anymore? What? Now Say he gets what? Ba- yeah, now he's in like the back pages of the New York Times online, oh, <laughs> and I oh. I hope he's getting paid and enjoys his like his Fort Greene condo or whatever. But yeah, now he's just writing about black culture or something. I don't know. No. Come on, no, Wesley, come back to come back to movie reviews. Nice. Get back to your bread and butter. That's, don't do hurts. don't do like stupid stupid podcasts where you comment on the fashion at Aretha Franklin's funeral. <laughs> 
ouch, ouch. <laughs> That's what he does. I'm t- show me the lie. <laughs> he's getting paid. All right, let I, him do I know what he wants. Important. I know. Yeah, let him get paid. Even when he was working for the Boston Globe, like half his articles were in like the culture section on the Sunday yeah, papers. So. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yep. When you're a black gay man, you have lots of opinions. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. And and he's getting paid for him, so congrats yep. to him. Exactly. And he has his Pulitzer too. So what else? What else does he have to achieve? Mm-hmm. Speaking of opinions, we've got more <laughs> for you, folks. We've got strong ones. Oh my gosh, Aretha, Aretha Franklin's funeral. <laughs> Epic clapbacks against our, our big wet president. <laughs> Greg, funerals are not time for political commentary, okay? It should be honoring the fallen, all right? Yeah. Unless that person was killed by an illegal immigrant, then we do not politicize their deaths, okay? Yes, then, then, no, then we do, because that's all <laughs> okay. we can. Oh, that's right. Yeah, because one side is playing to win, <laughs> and the other side is playing to be nice. <laughs> And investing treasures in, I don't know, political heaven or something. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, this leads us in perfectly to our signature yeah. segment. Spotlight. 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 It's time, Robbie. It's time. I'm glad I'm glad we got political, John, because I've got a politically charged spotlight. So do I. Ooh, you go first. Oh, ooh, okay, ooh, all right, ooh, all right. Ooh, well, yeah. I'm loath to admit uh, the existence of other podcasts, but I'm going to. Oh. Wait a minute, yeah. you gave me shit for doing a political exactly. podcast last week. John, did I just not acknowledge the hypocrisy here? No, okay, fine. Yeah, and it, and I, I bring it up for a reason, because, um, John, I don't know, it, I'm sure this will become clearer to listeners of both podcasts, if they exist. I think mm-hmm. the, the Venn diagram between these two is just a tiny microscopic sliver. <laughs> but I, I am a gray wolf. I'm a huge fan of Chapo Trap House. Um, mm. A leftist podcast for um, five dirty, uh, excuse me, four dirty boys and one dirty woman in uh, Brooklyn. Speaking of morning zoo. Yeah, John, yeah. I was going to say, how would you describe it, John? I would say it's, uh, it's a morning zoo who's read a lot of Jean-Paul Zizek. Yeah. <laughs> and, they, and they do make fun of Zizek. <laughs> you know, it's of- like the, the pace of it and is very like morning zoo esque. It's just a bunch of guys like hanging out, like making jokes, and then all yeah. of a sudden someone will drop a Surratt reference. Like, yeah, <laughs> or oh, drop Carl more Young importantly, John drop a truth bomb, um, oh, particularly <laughs> a a leftist socialist one, because they are also in addition to making uh, kind of like off color or let's say inappropriate jokes. Um, mm-hmm. There is there is also a strong leftist socialist bent to it. Yeah, imagine if Mad Dog in the Morning like was a Noam Chomsky aficionado. Yeah. Like that's what that's the pace we're dealing with here. Well, not Chom- not Chomsky, John. Let's say Marx. Oh, Marx. oh is, Cho- is Chomsky too basic? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but John, they they just released their first book. Ooh, their first tome. It's called The Chapo Guide to Revolution: A oh, Manifesto boy. Against Logic, Facts, and Reason. Yay! Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of satirical, um, <laughs> except Stephen Colbert did it ten years ago. Come on, I do. <laughs> I, John, was it was it a, a, a vowed revolution or? I guess not. No, no, that was more American. It was book. a simpler time when you can make fun of political pundits, and it wasn't. Yeah, <laughs> it wasn't. They didn't try to double down and go even farther. <laughs> yeah, and they would also accuse him of being a neoliberal because, as I said, this is a leftist podcast. Um, mm-hmm who obviously rightfully fewer opponents on the right, but they think the more insidious en- enemy is centrist and mm. um, what they label neoliberals. <laughs> no. Which is a really ambiguous term, but kind of, well, they define it as these kind of milquetoast um, centrist people who uplift like norms and decency, <laughs> um, as well as like uh, technocratic solutions and other things that, you know, think will like elevate the discourse and make and, uh, uh, designed to satisfy everybody, but really, in, in reality, satisfy nobody. And yeah. As as our political system knows, just completely, um, just completely folds for the right wing of America. That is absolutely true. If yeah. they were only more like conservatives, then everything would work out. <laughs> yeah. Well, I will say, yeah, I, the the book is um the, the book is only six chapters. It's a pretty quick read. Um, and it just six chapters. <laughs> what are you paying for, <laughs> well, John? I'll tell you what you're paying for. Six chapters, as well as um, taxonomies on um, the different archetypes that occur in the in the neoliberal centrist world, like the wine mom. Um, okay. <laughs> um, as well as obviously the right wing world, like the uh, the protective dad. Um, mm-hmm. Or the the neocon warmonger. <laughs> okay. Or the actual vampire. <laughs> 
<laughs> so it is. It does kind of read like one of those Stephen Colbert books or one of those Onion books, where mm-hmm. there are these long chapters where it tries to be it tries to be the vegetables, or it's aspiring to be like a people's history of the United States, where it's trying to draw a straight line between how capital power has basically um, denigrated the poor and lowest amongst us, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and advocated for war, profit, and every a- other amoral thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's their kind of like their biggest contradiction is that they're they're very against war and obviously are appalled by the state of political discourse today however mm-hmm. they they do love like the off-color joke or making fun of a person's appearance <laughs> like, exactly <laughs> so yeah that's a that's a kind of contradiction there and i will say the book doesn't really they're they're not like supporting a candidate um they're not getting out the vote um <laughs> but they are they are uh, promoting an ideology in which mm-hmm. case it is basically socialism um the dignity of everybody and basically this kind of um this solidarity between okay. um, everybody, in which case, you know, it's it sharing of more government resources, um, a denigration of uh, private enterprise and billionaires, just basically no more billionaires. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, like, well, it's funny that you said the word solidarity with everybody, but it's more like <laughs> you just complained about centrists and they're saying that there's no room for. Oh, exactly. Yeah, anymore. that's the other country. Like they would cut the the third the the third of the country that watches Fox News and are just slack jawed rubes about <laughs> the the con man that is currently in our White House. Like just cu- just cut them adrift. Like they yeah. should like um, they should be alienated and they should be miserable. I believe one of the co-hosts mm. just said. <laughs> I guess that's and you know what they feel afraid. Well, screw you. I mean, there's a difference between like feeling afraid and actually being afraid. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, we're not gonna we're not gonna comport to your you know, ginned up racism or exactly. I um, mean, it is kind of funny because I I was one of those milk toasts, you know. Let's let's be let's be centrist, guys. Let's see if we can find common ground, you know. Before Donald Trump was pre- you know president, and now all of a sudden I find myself, you know, you know what? Bernie was right. Let's tear it all down. Medicare yeah. for all. <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So I, and I, 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 I obviously I don't love Chapo Trap House as much as you do, but I, mm-hmm. I do think it is an interesting podcast, and I'm sure this book is great. Yeah, I've, well, I'm glad you brought it back. I haven't even mentioned the book. Um, <laughs> okay. Again, in addition to those chapters being kind of like a like a people like a Howard's in tome, mm-hmm. um, they do have they do find a lot of space for like good jokes. I mean, my favorite is one I caught here at the at the beginning uh, is um the world is indeed complex and therefore boring so we'll do our best to give you the information you need to craft global solutions for a global world (laughs) (laughs) and um my favorite chapter is they they it starts with like a again that straight line between you know from all the way to marx to the current world that we live in Like how every war and every you know institution just leads inexorably to the right wing hell world that America is embroiled in. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, but I think it really comes alive in a in a media chapter. Um, that's where kind of the best jokes come in, and I think that's also the the making fun that's... of the media. Yeah, I, how, where I did I get off? <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, it's the it's the biggest target and the easiest target, and let's say they they hit a bullseye on it. Okay. So. <laughs> So that that one I appreciated, and so again, if you if you are indeed um, uh, smooth brained as I am, and you've fallen under the spell of these dirt bags, <laughs> you will enjoy the book as well as the podcast. So, all right, yeah, um, they they keep insisting buy the book, but you know, again, they're not they're anti capitalists, and now they want to profit off capital. No, thank you. Yeah, they should be giving it away. They should have yeah, it. So, steal yeah. this book, <laughs> steal yeah, steal the book or get it from your local library. <laughs> Although they only recently instructed, don't get it on Amazon because of their um, terrible labor practices. But <laughs> I, it's too late for me. I'm sorry. Well, Amazon I want to know. Surprised. I want to know where the book was printed. I want to know if it was printed under fair labor practices. Well, let's. I, I, Are the profits I, shared with them? Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> That's a great question. Hmm. Oh, I smell hypocrisy. Oh, mm-hmm. we're all about utopia until it comes for you. Hmm. Mm. Well, Greg, I too have a book I want to recommend. This whoa, 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 two for two on books? Exactly. Oh boy. And yeah, ooh, boy. Greg. And I th- I thought I thought we were sophisticated before. <laughs> Maybe we should you know stop putting this under the entertainment section and start doing literature. Ooh, oh yes. yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Politics and news. <laughs> but Greg, I was I was rummaging through the upcoming schedule for fall movies. Because you know, now we're hitting the fall. Now it's time for the prestige pictures. And yes. oh boy, I was so bored. I was like, ugh, there's nothing I'm looking forward to. Until this week, mm-hmm. where a new trailer dropped. The new movie, The Front Runner. 
Ah, starring Hugh Jackman, directed by Jason mm. Reitman. Two of yeah, your favorites. Yeah, starring Hugh Jackman. <laughs> <laughs> John, uh, let's get let's get into the the, the media's long tradition of truth telling <laughs> by casting uh, Hugh Jackman as Gary Hart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can see it. Maybe a little bit if you squint. I don't be squint. <laughs> But John, John, I mean, where where did the story come from? I mean, cl- clearly it wasn't literature, was it? Much less a book that you read. <laughs> well, <laughs> wouldn't you know it? I am familiar with the story because it is from a book I've read. Oh the my book gosh! Is, the book is called "All the Truth Is Out" by mm. Matt Bai, and uh, the subtitle is "The Week Politics Went Tabloid." Oh, so for those because who John, f- the media was too good for it before. <laughs> So for those who aren't familiar uh, with the candidate Gary Hart, he was running as the Democratic frontrunner for the uh, presidential nomination. He was eventually going to run against George H.W. Bush in 1988. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a very cerebral guy. He was very focused on policy. He didn't have much of a personality. And he liked to keep his private life separate. And you I know, wonder that, why. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and this was still kind of back in the day where the media was like, eh, you know, that's fine. You know, their personal yeah. their personal morals really aren't any business of ours. You know, it's really yeah. about the policies and what they stand for. But you had these dogged, intrepid reporters. They, they thought themselves Woodward and Bernstein, so they started investigating, and they discovered he was having an affair. Not a huge news story, especially not at this time, but it turns into a media sensation. He was a proto-Bill mm. Clinton, where all of a sudden, you know, politicians' sex lives became important. And yeah. the other kind of notable thing was this is also one of the first instances where news vans became a huge thing. They all parked up in line in front of his house, you know, trying yeah. to get the scoop. Instead of having to do pre-tape... Uh, uh, segments now you could record live exactly from the scene and it's just kind of it's a very interesting situation because it's like again it's a watershed moment in the intersection of politics and the media where it's like this would traditionally be like kind of like a tabloid story but all of a sudden now it's a major news headline Mm -hmm. and it became kind of a watershed moment because before this the media only really focused on a politician's qualifications and what mm-hmm. they really stood for. And then all of a sudden, now that their personal lives become like uh, this kind of huge component of who they are as politicians. And it's even weirder revisiting it now in 2018. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when well, the biggest tabloid star ever is now president. <laughs> and it's like no one even cares about it. Yeah, well, anymore. I was going to say it's it becomes like full circle. You mentioned earlier, like, Let's say, take an example like JFK. Obviously, a lot of infidelities and a lot of, you know, a lot going on in his personal life, but the media wouldn't touch it because they thought that's too tawdry or mm-hmm. something. And Gary Hart is what kind of flipped that. Exactly. Um, because, because, again, the story was too good. A boat called Monkey Business? Are you kidding me? <laughs> But now, uh, what I was going to say, John, like, now it's become full circle. You have a candidate who is literally, like, all tabloid stories, but mm. they're either covered up by a, a um, unamenable uh, National Enquirer or, <laughs> like, uh, just newspapers and uh, the chummy chummy media producers at NBC or something like that are just like, well, let's, let's, let's not run with it. Or, <laughs> exactly. You know, or it's fine. Or we've already put too much focus on that. The story mm. won't stick. <laughs> And the most interesting chapter of the book and this whole story is at a certain point when the uh, investigators, quote unquote, the reporters, kind of confront him at like six o'clock in the morning. He's going out for a run, and that's Mm -hmm. where they decide to kind of like ambush him. They start, they're they're basically stalking him for a while, and then they kind of like ambush him, asking stories about his personal life. And it's again like in the reporters' minds, they're Woodward and Bernstein. They're keeping these yeah. this politician to account. But it's like, <laughs> no, you guys are sleazy. You guys are stalking him. <laughs> you know, it's this. It's it's a very weird, ambiguous story, and it's kind of bizarre that it it kind of was forgotten about, or maybe it was just completely overshadowed by like Bill Clinton, the big story of you know presidential yeah. infidelity. Even more tawdry and you yeah, know, even worse detail. Like monkey business just seems tame compared to. <laughs> What happened in the Clinton saga, but... Exactly. I mean, with that, you have, you know, stuff actually going on in the White House, but then you also have that yeah. great power imbalance, you know, a much younger woman who was an intern, as opposed yeah. to Gary Hart. He was carrying on with a woman his age, you know, perfectly appropriate and perfectly consenting, so... That, well, it's not appro- if you care about the sanctity of marriage, John... <laughs> Greg, I'm sex positive now. Okay, it's 2018 and I am woke. No, I, I'm opposite. I'm sex negative. No sex. Nobody should have sex. It's clammy and gross. It's clammy and gross. Mm, the clamier, the better for me. Yeah. Mm. It's like a basement down there, all mildewy. 
<laughs> and of course, I'm super excited about this movie because we've got Hugh Jackman, my personal favorite Hollywood man crush, yeah. <laughs> with a, hot, a hottie with a body yaddy yaddy, yeah. and we'll get to maybe we'll get to see those tawdry scenes. Mm. Yeah, and and <laughs> also give me that of... give me that melanoma ridden skin. Mm. I, more please. <laughs> I'd say it looks like he's he's taking down the roids a little bit. No, oh, yeah, Wolverine days. He's, he's mm. trying to put on that dad bod. Yeah, looking a little bit more life like a like the real Gary Hart. But also to bring it back to film snobbery, one of your also your favorite directors who directed another great Hollywood satire in recent memory. Thank you for smoking. So yeah, um, well, I mean. I was kind of surprised that this is Jason Reitman, and I am kind of a little cautiously optimistic because he has he has lost a lot of favor with me over the years. With that, you know, <laughs> what do you, what John? What are you saying about men, women, children? <laughs> Look, the, thank the you internet for is bad. Don't you agree? <laughs> <laughs> There's no doubt the internet's bad. And thank you for yeah. smoking is one of my favorite movies of all time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you know, he followed up with Juno. I'm like, okay, well, when are you gonna go back into the satire game? When are you gonna get back into the political stuff? And then he did Up in the Air, which was kind of like that. But then he just kept doing like. You know, quiet little personal dramas. Yawn, snooze. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Handheld, you know, really brown brown on brown, like exactly. overexposed lighting. So, and, and then he did that, movie. you know, pie fucking appears movie. Appears to be the same. What was that pie fucking movie he did? Oh, Labor Day. <laughs> Labor Day. Oh, we bring it full circle. It's Kismet. Yes. Let's put, yeah, let's put a bow on this one. Labor Day. Go see Labor Day starring Josh Brolin and Kate Winslet. Brilliant. <laughs> they fuck when they're making a pie. It's great. Yeah, it's, I know. Somebody said, hey, I, I thought that... Uh, Oscar that uh, ultimately went to that adapted screenplay Oscar that ultimately went to Precious. Um, I thought that was mine, so I'm gonna I'm gonna go I'm gonna go for gold here with Labor Day, a saucy romance starring two other Oscar nominees and Oscar winner in the case of Kate Winslet. So didn't work out, did it, Jason? <laughs> but yes, all the truth is out. Great book. Mm-hmm. Check it out. Yeah. Prepare yeah. for the front runner coming this fall, coming this November mm-hmm. yes. to theaters near you. I know it's it's as you said it's going to be kismet. It's going to be all about. It's a key election here, 2018. Um, mm-hmm. Just as they all are, mm-hmm. people get out the vote, guys. <laughs> rock get out the vote, vote, vote or vote. die. Vote yeah. for your most progressive candidates you can. Okay, no middle mm-hmm. ground. All right, Cynthia Nixon, uh, Alexandra, what's her face? Uh, yeah, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, bro. Sorry, sorry. Just too many souls. Yeah, those are just yeah, oddly enough, those are just in New York politics. <laughs> Anywhere else, you know, between the other contiguous states, what are there? Uh, 55? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Craig, look, we have to play to middle America, okay? We have to do some kind of... We have to reach the yokels out there, okay? The drag can only go so far. John, I know know just the way we're going to do it. How are we going to reach them, Greg? With social media. They're obviously on there liking and retweeting all of uh, big boy Donald Trump's tweets. (laughs) They're obviously on on Facebook sharing all the latest QAnon news. (laughs) Of course. So yeah, they and and the memes of scary foreigners, you know, entering our country <laughs> by the by the millions. So go to Twitter and follow us mm-hmm. for the dankest memes, the greatest QAnon <laughs> updates. Yeah, and then go to our Facebook page, like and subscribe, and you'll find all our great supplement ads to keep you from losing your estrogen or testosterone, whatever it is this week. <laughs> oh, bro, you got to be virile, all right? <laughs> of course. Yeah, I saw one. To, put another bow on this i saw i'm watching foot tv for the first conventional tv for the first time in months now that i'm watching college football so many ads for four hymns um, oh, of course viagra just, for millennials yeah yeah which is just yeah, which is just testosterone through the mail <laughs> and yeah Greg, it's I, also... I can already yeah and i believe who, who endorsed it oh snoop dog he says like i can already see your hair growing back <laughs> like yeah that's the way genetics works <laughs> Look, Greg. They they clear, Viagra clearly played out with the older crowd. Okay, now we need something more millennial, more hip, more younger. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So let's yeah. package it like it's fucking Dollar Shave Club, yeah. <laughs> or Hello Box or Hello Fresh. Yeah. Luke, Lie to Luke, them. Luke tell e them. Crate. Yeah. <laughs> tell them that their balding's reversible. It's great. It's yeah. worked for years. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so once you're done with that, and you're still in your internet boxes of choice, why don't you yeah. go to your podcast service of choice, whether it be Apple Podcast or Stitcher or Podbeam or uh, 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 Player FM, Acast, John, there are too many. All right, fine, there's too many. It's an embarrassment of riches. Exactly. And you can subscribe, give us a review, and help more people find us. Yeah. Won't that, won't that, doesn't that sound enticing? Exactly. We can start the political revolution here, people. Yes. (laughs) um, Aspiring snobs, day zero. (laughs) 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 Movies for everybody. (laughs) The blue wave is crashing here at Aspiring Snobs. Yeah. (laughs) 
Well, according to our logo, it's the yellow wave, so <laughs> whatever. That's the political Should I make it blue for November? Fine. Should I make our podcast? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, because obviously uh, I'll let people guess what our politics are. <laughs> but we're two young people living in Southern California. You know, go, go ahead and guess. <laughs> Greg, I'm collecting my guns right now, okay, because they're going to take them. <laughs> Well, John, before you before the oncoming revolution, let it, let the folks know what our uh, movie is this week. Episode ninety nine. We're also approaching episode one hundred. Ooh, so stay tuned. Yeah, so we've got something special prepared for that. Yes. Uh, next week, though, it's a clip show. <laughs> hey, I wouldn't let I wouldn't I wouldn't be opposed to the idea. Idea. <laughs> Anywho, next week to celebrate the upcoming Shane Black penned and directed The Predator, we're going to mm-hmm. be revisiting the Shane Black starring. Predator. <laughs> Starring, yeah. He was the star of the movie. The, um, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Jesse Ventura, and Carl Weathers round out the cast. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Greg, it's a small independent picture about a young scrawny yeah. writer trying to make it in the world. <laughs> yeah. He has to, he's, he's forced to, to slum it as an operator. <laughs> I'm sure that's something else that Chapo Trap House would comment on. You know, America just sending guns and forces down to Central American countries. <laughs> I wonder what the movie's trying to say. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so tune in for that next week. Yes. But until then, thank you, everybody, for listening. And until next time, keep aspiring.